is Hooks and Runs, a podcast about baseball, music, and culture. My name is Craig. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Craig, and hello, Rex. Hello. Once again, we are recording on a Tuesday live from downtown Bay City at Crazy Carl's Music Emporium. I'm sorry, Midtown Bay City. Yeah. Where the party that. never stops. Where the party never stops. So anyway, Andrew, we have been talking about the Angels. We discussed them two weeks ago with Jim Ruland and in our interview with him about SST Records, his book about SST Records. But the Angels' losing streak eventually went to 14 games, and they finally beat Boston on the ninth, 5-2. to two. But the story to me is that on June 7th, Right as we were about to begin our recording last week, the Angels fired their manager, Joe Madden, making him the second managerial firing of the year. But the kicker is that earlier in the day, in order to spark his team, he had gone to a barber and gotten his hair cut in a mohawk. And he didn't even get the chance to show his team the mohawk before they let him know he was fired. So... That's just tragic. I, you know, I was actually, I was like, man, this is, this is some like uh, some trendy managerial firing going on now. But now, like, I feel bad for him. <laughs> I don't know if I feel that bad for him, but I guess the lesson for managers is if you got something like that in your back pocket to snap a losing streak, don't go twelve deep. Yeah, no, maybe maybe pop that on like maybe eight, eight nine. Yeah, that might that, be, that'd be a, you might have a chance. The Angels' new manager, interestingly enough, is Phil Nevin. He was the first overall pick for the Houston Astros in nineteen ninety two. And he has become the first first overall draft pick to become a manager, like for the franchise or for, for, for anybody for ever, anybody. anybody okay. Ever. There's been like what 55 now, and he's the first. That's a, yeah, no, that's big. To make it as a manager. On the other end of the spectrum, the defending World Series champions, the Braves, have won 12 in a row to get over 500. They're 35 and 27. But bad news for Atlanta: second base star Alzi Albies broke his foot last night and is now on the 60-day disabled list or injured list. The Phillies saw their losing their winning streak snapped at nine, but they've now won 10 and 11 and are 31 and 30. And Rob Thompson looks like the answer for them, at least so far. They're fine. Yeah, they're in the above 500 club. So, I mean, hey, good news for the Phillies. Good news for the Phillies, but the Mets are still way ahead and and looking good every day. Our guest, though, we want to get on to our guest because we have a special guest, and this is a special week in baseball history we want to talk about. Our guest is Professor Jeremy Duru, professor of law at American University Washington College of Law in Washington, D.C., he teaches researches and rights in sports law, civil procedure, and employment discrimination. He's among the nation's foremost sports law authorities, co-author of the field's premier casebook, Sports Law and Regulation, Cases and Materials, 5th edition. He is also named to numerous boards and advisory committees in the sports field and is frequently recognized for teaching excellence. His full biography will be linked in our show notes. Today we're going to talk to Professor Duru about a landmark baseball-related Supreme Court case that was decided this week, actually June 19th, 1972, 50 years ago this week. The case is Flood versus Kuhn. It led to the free agency system that we have in baseball and sports today. So, Professor, welcome to Hooks and Runs. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm happy to be with you all. Well, we're glad to have you. We're going to start off with a couple of terminology things and just like background to this case. To start with, I want to ask you about the reserve clause that existed in baseball prior to the free agency era, which came around in the mid-70s. What exactly is the reserve clause, and how did it affect baseball players and fans leading up to the free agency era? Sure. So the reserve clause, for you know, for folks who are on the younger side, who just know about free agency and big-time signings, the reserve clause will seem 
antiquated and, and really unbelievable, but there used to be this clause that clubs routinely had in their contracts with players. They reserved for the club the right to automatically renew the contract with the player for the next year. And then when the player signs that one, the clause in the one renews for the next year and on and on it goes. So essentially the reserve clause bound a player in perpetuity to the club until the club was re ready to part ways by trading the player, by cutting the player. So basically it robbed the player of any agency. All right. So essentially what you're saying is if a player in the 1930s, let's say, or 40s signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers, they were bound to the Brooklyn Dodgers regardless of the length of their contract until the Dodgers decided they were done with them. That's right. And so if you, you know, if someone were to go back and look at the you know, career trajectory of players in those days versus players today, they'd be astonished. You know, in those days you see you know, reds, 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 reds down ten year career where, you know, these these days you'll see some hopping around. Right. Okay, so that explains how we got to free agency, which I, you're right, for younger uh, listeners, they may not remember or know that there was a time when players were bound to their teams that way in perpetuity. So another question or another kind of oddity that, that plays in Kurt Flood's legal case is the baseball exemption to the antitrust law. So can you give us the background on that and what that means for players and fans? Yeah, so that is an oddity. Uh, that is oddity, Craig. So the antitrust exemption, so it was born in a case, a 1922 United States Supreme Court case. The case was called Federal Baseball. And it dealt with this league called the Federal League that was essentially driven out of existence by the American League and National League that we all know and love today. The Federal League got driven out, and, and they ended up suing on antitrust grounds. And the court basically said that Major League Baseball does not constitute interstate commerce. And let me explain why that is relevant. So it's relevant because the, the principal antitrust statute, the statute under which the Federal League was suing, um, requires that for there to be application, the businesses to which the statute is being applied must be involved in interstate commerce, commerce across state borders. And so in doing what it did, in saying that the business of baseball does not constitute interstate commerce, what the court was saying is that baseball is exempted from the antitrust application. It can't apply because it's not interstate uh, commerce and and the the crazy thing about it is that it seemed very clear it was interstate commerce even then club this you know there were fewer clubs but the structure is like it is now there are different clubs playing in different cities and different states yeah. and they cross state boundaries in order to play so yeah how does how does Brooklyn, Brooklyn play Cincinnati without crossing a state line that's what I want to know exactly but the court said no it's not interstate commerce and so this exemption was born and it is an oddity because it seems to be seems to stand on such faulty logic yeah just to clear up one more uh, term that you're using antitrust uh, essentially that's anti-monopoly correct yeah antitrust antitrust laws are laws that prevent conspiracy to control a market we don't want you know coca-cola to take over pepsi and everything else and then if you want to get cola all you have is coke because if that's the case they're going to drive up the price according to capitalistic um, expectations so Antitrust law exists to avoid that sort of monopoly. Okay, so into this arena with antitrust exemption and the reserve clause comes Kurt Flood, 
a, an instrumental part of this story on the road to free agency. But who exactly is Kurt Flood? Because I think if you ask most casual fans today, uh, they will not remember him or know him. He's not a Hall of Famer. He was a pretty good player, though. What can you tell us about Kurt Flood in the years going up to 1969 when all of this happened? Yeah, I'm glad you said that he's a really good player because, you know, for those who've heard of Kurt Flood, it's likely because they've heard of the case that we're about to talk about. He was a two-time world champion with the Cardinals, but go ahead. Yeah, he was, he was, yeah, no, I, yeah, he was a, he was a, he was a very good player. Not Hall of Fame level, but very good. He was a center fielder. I think he won like six or seven gold gloves, maybe in a row. He's an all-star many times. And he played, and what, among other things that's relevant to what we're about to talk about, he played the great bulk of his career in St. Louis for the Cardinals. He liked the city. He liked where he lived. He had a photography studio. Photography was a hobby of his. He had a studio there, a little business. So he was rooted in St. Louis and played very well there for the better part of a decade. Yeah, he was a superior outfielder. And you uh, think uh, the reason that a lot of people overlook him is if you look at his batting averages of the time, particularly in their World Series seasons, they don't seem that great. But then you remember that the 60s were the decade of the pitcher. And the latter 60s, yeah. the pitchers kind of ruled the roost. But he was a good player. I'm old enough to remember him as a player, although at the time I didn't remember this case or know much about it. But uh, anyway, a very good player. And as it happened, right after the 1969 season, the Cardinals traded Kurt Flood in a pretty big deal, involved like seven or eight players, to the Philadelphia Phillies to acquire a really good player in his own right, Dick Allen, a hard-hitting first baseman. So this set the wheels in motion for Kurt Flood to sue Major League Baseball. So can you kind of walk us through the events that led to the lawsuit? Sure. So as I pointed out, Flood was, you know, St. Louis through and through. He loved being there. He had his business there. And he got traded, as you point out. Now, a number of things precipitated uh, the suit. One, he was upset because um, he wasn't notified in advance or with the appropriate respect he felt was, you know, was reasonable for somebody who played so well and for so long in St. Louis. So first of all, he, he felt disrespected. On top of that, the Phillies weren't very good, and they played in the old broken-down stadium. And and on top of that, Phillies fans were known to be pretty much the most racist fans in Major League Baseball outside uh, Boston. Uh, the Red Sox fans had a pretty bad reputation, but the Phillies fans too. And Kerf, I didn't point out before, but it bears noting, that he's black, he's African uh, American, so he didn't want to play in that environment for that club in that city, and so he said he didn't want to go. They said you have to go, and so he sued. Okay, he filed a lawsuit, and at that, by even though we didn't have free agency by this time, the players did have a union. Marvin Miller, who is in the Baseball Hall of Fame, was the head of that union, and he hooked. Kurt Flood up with a former United States Supreme Court justice. So Justice Goldberg was Kurt Flood's attorney, a nationally recognized labor lawyer before going on the Supreme Court. He lost his case, though, at trial, and he went to the first appeal and lost again. So this case is taken by the Supreme Court. So how did the Supreme Court ultimately decide the case, and what was the importance of the decision and the reaction to it? Okay, there's a lot to this, so let me say. That's fine. We got time. yeah, okay, great. Leading with the conclusion, Flood lost. So so Flood brought the antitrust suit. Major League Baseball defended with the exemption that we talked about, and the court upheld the, ex- the um, exemption. And the fascinating thing 
is that the court here acknowledged what it refused to acknowledge 50 years earlier in the federal baseball case we were talking about. They, they acknowledged that professional baseball is interstate commerce, right? Okay. But nonetheless, they upheld the exemption saying that it was well settled. Congress had allowed it to stand for over 50 years. Baseball had developed under it. And so essentially, uh, you know, let's just uh, leave well enough alone. And it really, you know, a lot of people called this, you know, the case where sport defeated law because on the facts and with the law, it really seemed like a case that Flood should have won. But at trial, the judge was a huge baseball fan. Throughout the trial, Craig made all these comments like um, after a hearing said something like, you, you, you all have thrown me the, the ball. I hope I don't drop it. I hope I don't make an error. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, when he, when he wants a recess, he says, you know, I'm now, you know, um, let's take a seventh inning stretch instead of, instead of a recess. <laughs> instead so of he's recess, using yeah. this language, right, showing that he loves the game. And the concern at the time was that if free agency existed, if players got this power, they'd go from club to club. You wouldn't have that player who you see at the bakery who's been playing in your city for 15 years and is part of the community. You wouldn't be able to stick with one club because players are going from club to club. It would hurt the fans. That was the narrative. And so it seemed like those who loved baseball wanted to side with Major League Baseball instead of flux. So the, the trial court did that, I would argue, okay. as evidenced by some of the antics. But the Supreme Court did too. Astoundingly, in the Supreme Court decision, Blackman, Justice Blackman, who wrote the case, in the decision now, it's a legal decision, Craig, you know all about them. In the decision, he lists 80 players that he really loved <laughs> yeah. and talked about how they sparked the diamond with tremendous activity and, and joy. And he talked about them in season and off season, all this sort of stuff that has nothing to do with the law or with the legal <laughs> case. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, so the exemption was upheld, but it made no sense. And, the, you know, the case was sport defeated law. It was. And, you know, going back to what you mentioned about the Federal League case, which I've read that case, I've read the, um, you know, the Kurt Flood case. The I always thought the Federal League case turned more on just the idea that baseball was a national game that didn't really have to follow the rules. I know they, they made the illusion. I just yeah. think they were really looking for any language that would carve that out and side yeah. with baseball. But it was what it was. Kurt Flood loses the case and really – though the result ultimately became free agency. How did the case itself, which Flood lost, lead to the death of the reserve clause and the free agency era we now know about? So I think this, you mentioned Marvin Miller before. Marvin Miller, the head of the Players Union, who you point out in the Hall of Fame, you know, kind of was, I would say, maybe, you know, going certainly from the Flood case going forward, was kind of on a campaign to doom the reserve clause, to open up opportunity for players, to give them more agency, more control over their professional uh, lives. Um, and, and the flood case, because it, it did seem so illogical and, and, and built on sand, that it kind of, the narrative in the country changed a little bit. People, I think, became a little less comfortable with the defense against the players that had been used for years and years to control them. And so you started to get more and more of an upswell against um, the reserve club. And so you had a, um, a couple of players, Messersmith and McNally were their names, right. who um, challenged the reserve club and through an arbitration 
uh, ultimately ended up winning. Not on antitrust grounds as much as contract grounds. It, it was determined that the contracts were were too broad or vague to 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 be construed um, as controlling somebody essentially, you know, every year going forward for their professional life. So interestingly that I think that arbitrator's name was Seitz and he the yeah, Seitz, was, Seitz, yeah. Peter Seitz, I believe, but I'll um It'll be in the show notes, but I think that if I remember correctly, Major League Baseball fired him immediately after he made that decision. <laughs> I, I did not know that fact, but I wouldn't be surprised by it. Yeah, I think that's true. I'll check that, and and uh, we'll see. But yeah, that the owners were not happy. They were convinced that free agency would be the death knell of baseball. Of course, it's been the yeah. exact opposite, and it's been a boon for baseball. I think most people agree today. But let's talk about Kurt Flood because he did not play in that he was traded after the 1969 season and he did not play because of the case in 1970. There was a series of events that led to St. Louis retrading him again to the Phillies and then the Phillies after the 70 season traded him for not much at all to the Washington Senators and he played only 13 games in 1971. He reported to camp he was really had gone through rough personal issues in 1970 not getting to play the senators made him a very generous deal offering to pay him $110,000 for the season and uh, he was just not up to doing it and he hit three 200 in 13 games he later found himself in more hardship a divorce some self-inflicted issues with him as well he paid a very steep price for taking the stand that he did how should baseball players and fans today remember kurt flood I'm really glad that you just said all that you said. And I'll answer that question in a minute. But let me just say that you're right. He paid a huge price. And I, and I want to, if I could, uh, go back to race for a minute. Because not only was he bucking the system um, pretty vigorously, but uh, it was a black man bucking the system in an era where um, African Americans bucking the system was not looked well upon. The amount of hate mail and death threats that he received is probably, uh, you know, it's probably innumerable number of, of such, uh, you know, mail and threats. And as you pointed out, and I think he, he ended up um, drinking a bit and, um, and suffered in many different regards. And a lot of it was the pressure of putting this on his back. And as we point out, he lost the case, but his effort resulted in, you know, it's kind of the first stone, um, first domino falling with respect to free agency finally coming uh, to be. So how should how should he be remembered? Well, first of all, he was a prideful player. And so the first thing I think people should remember that he was an excellent player. And then I think people should, should and, and, and people should, what people should not remember, should not view him as is a loser. In the litigation, he was not successful, but in fact, what he sought to get done got done. So I would say that he won. So I'd say a really, really, really good player and an extremely brave person. No to doubt take a about stand that. that resulted in damage to him, but benefit to so many more. No doubt about that. I think there's a quote that Bob Gibson asked Kurt Flood at one point. Incidentally, Bob Gibson, a lot of people do remember him, a Hall of Fame pitcher, one of the best ever. But Bob Gibson was a teammate of Flood's through the 60s with the St. Louis Cardinals during the time that they won two World Series titles. And I think during the trial, Bob Gibson asked him at one point, uh, why are you even doing this, you know? You should be playing, and I think a lot of players felt like this was kind of a kind of a uh, a bit of a reach. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think 
one, I think they thought it was a breach that it couldn't be done. And two, you know, it's just, you know, I mean, you know, and there's no, there's no judgment in what I'm about to say. Different people take different approaches. Some people are comfortable right. um, enduring something that they think is suboptimal, but on net, they're happy with the system. And other people can't endure it. And Flood, Flood couldn't endure it. And so, you know, we took the stand uh, that he took. So, what else is there that's notable about Kurt Flood that that we might want to what we might want to talk about? Because I think again, the, the point of wanting to have you on and talk about this case in your field of expertise is just because I think Kurt Flood is not remembered the way he should be remembered today. I think he's really a major figure in baseball history, not only for being a a really good ball player, but for this stand that he took that led to free agency. Yeah, no, I agree, a hundred percent. I mean, one thing I'll say is for your listeners who are interested in learning more about Kerr Flood, there's a really good biography of Kerr Flood by a guy named Brad Snyder. Right. He's a law professor at Georgetown, I believe, called A Well-Paid Slave. And the title of the book came from an interview that Kurt Flood gave during the period of litigation. I'm not sure if it was right afterwards or right before. I don't think it was during, but he said, you know, it's, I, don't quote me, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, you know, in this system, I'm a slave. I have to do what they tell me to do. I have to go and play where they tell me to play. An interview said something like, well, you're really well paid. And Kurt Flood said, well, a well-paid slave is a slave uh, nonetheless. And what's interesting about that, uh, Craig, is that that sentiment expressed then has caught on now. So the conversations that have had, been had over the course of the last few years, particularly in the collegiate arena, with people analogizing college athletics where players have very little agency and they don't get paid. We know about the name, image, and likeness developments, which maybe we talk about that allows them to make some money, those who can command the market. But for the most part, they're not, they, they, they're not um, you know, compensated. And so... You know, the, the conversation when people talk about the issue is, well, this is, you know, very much they're being traded like slaves. The plantation mentality is what people say. Right. Now, a person can agree or disagree with that um, characterization, but without question, Kurt Flood was saying that 50 years earlier. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, he was in, the, in those yeah in those terms. So uh, anyway, we, uh, we we appreciate you being on. I got a question for you. Talking to some of my Texas A&M friends about this image and likeness issue. I just asked, I said, I think the problem NCAA is going to have at some point is going to be Title IX. Do you, do you think there's a connection between image and likeness as it relates to football where the big money is when it comes to Title IX and issues like women's volleyball or women's uh, track or something like that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, it, depending on how the money gets to the athletes, you know, when the schools bundle it and it comes through, you know, a booster organization, which is happening more and more. Hey, every football player is going to have five, you know, five hundred dollars a month or whatever. I think that's in Miami or something like that. Right. Some system like that. When when there seems to be organization around it, I think you do run into the Title IX question of equity because you've got however many eighty football players who are getting this money and non football players. Um, are not, and the 80 football players are all men, and the non-football players are both men and women, you've got a disproportionality that can trigger uh, Title IX. If it's just, you know, the starting quarterback going out and getting his own money from Nike, I think you've got less of a concern there. But where you will have a Title IX concern, for sure, is if, 
you start paying players. Yes. Yeah. And and that is where the the most substantial and robust resistance is right now on the part of the NCA. NCA resisted name, image, and likeness um, vigorously for a long time, and then California came in and said, "Hey, we're doing it anyway." Doing, as, yeah. a, as a matter of state statute. And then other states did the same. The NCA had no choice but to buckle. But the NCAA is now trying to fight off the effort to call student athletes employees and have them get paid under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which requires minimum wage. Right. Um, and they have to do it now because of um, case Justice of- Kavanaugh's concurrence in the Alston case last uh, summer, where he basically said these people, these student athletes, are no different than restaurant workers or hotel workers. They're right. workers; they need to get paid. Yeah, and exactly. So, Kurt Flood, we're going to have that book linked, and we're going to link some other biographical information and, and historical information about this case in our show notes, and we encourage you to, to look at that. Now, this is a baseball podcast, as we mentioned, so, Jeremy, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you who your favorite team is. Yeah, so I'm a Nationals fan. I'm a Nationals fan. I grew up in Tacoma Park, Maryland, right outside of D.C., and as a kid— there were no Nationals right. when I was a kid. I came after the Nationals and before the, before the uh, or after the Senators and before the Nationals. So there was no D.C. team. I kind of liked the Orioles, but just couldn't get into them. I wasn't a Baltimore guy. And so when the Nationals came <laughs> down. You're, you're preaching to the choir here. We got three. We love poking fun at the Orioles these days. But maybe it's for the best. <laughs> Who knows? Um, so, yeah, so when Nationals came to town, I – it took a while, you know, for every sports fan listening to this, you can't just automatically like a team. There's got to be some gotta have a reason, or something yeah. organic about it, you know. But eventually I came to like them. And fortunately, I had really clung on to them before they had their World Series run. And so I was able to enjoy it. I was actually a game, um, the, the, the game where they won the, uh, um, the pennant, which was a lot of fun there in D.C. Oh, the, who did they beat in that, uh, in that NCLS? NC, yeah, it was the it was the Cardinals, I think, wasn't it? Was it the Cardinals? Uh, no, I don't no remember. Idea. It was so long ago to me. NLCS, I meant to say the. So that's yeah, the game I you went to. The, the Cardinals. I think they beat the Brewers to get there, and then they beat the Cardinals. Okay. I could be wrong, but I know they beat the Brewers to get there. Well, ever since Washington beat our beloved Astros in the 2019 World Series, there it is. I have been predicting that the Nationals <laughs> would be competitive in 20 and 21 and again in 22. And I've kind of become convinced that the Nationals sold their soul to win that World Series. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's conceivable. The Astros I mean, were won. so it heavily favored. Yeah. <laughs> it was very unlikely, yeah. and the Astros were so heavily favored. I mean, if you do like a position-by-position Look at the 2019 World Series. It's almost like that crazy 1960 World Series when the Yankees outscored the Pirates about two to one. I think they outscored them something like 57 to 25 or some crazy. Yeah. And the, and the Pirates won four of the seven games. And this one was kind of like that. Every team won on the road. And but uh, what is it going to take other than an exorcism or uh, some other uh, mystical event to get the Nationals back competitive in the National League East? Uh, uh, well, yeah, mystical event of some sort. I can't conjure it up. I don't know what it would be, but boy, they look bad now. I mean, it's tough. It was it was tough for folks here because you know, nobody here had seen a, uh, any sort of baseball success, right, in D.C.? Yeah, ever. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, so it was, you know, to lose, um, you know, for to, to watch the Nats capitulate and get rid of Turner and Scherzer was really tough, you know, for folks here. Right, yeah, I'm sure. And, and 
So, you know, I, I don't know what it's going to take uh, to get him back. I you know Soda was on the block for a while. I love the guy. I'm glad I can't, back. man, that'd be heartbreaking, wouldn't it, to have him traded? Yeah. Fun yeah. fact. He's 23. Yeah. 23. yeah. <laughs> don't get Andrew started on he's his He's 23 eight. now. <laughs> yeah, he's 23. So, of course, they're paying a lot of money to Strasburg. He's not been healthy. He's trying to get back to his old self. But the other guy they're paying a lot of money to that really is not producing is Patrick Corbin. What's the word up there about why Patrick Corbin has become a very poor pitcher since the 2019 World Series? Yeah, you know, I can't, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know the word on that. I'm a little surprised uh, about it. I, you know, even, even when he was at his best, I didn't, I didn't love him. I'm not a baseball scout, um, but I didn't love him. I didn't feel extraordinary uh, confidence when he came in the game, but he did, he did come through there uh, at the end. But I don't know. I'm not sure, but it is disappointing. Now Strasburg's, you know, we know he's had the injury problems, um, but what he did in that postseason was just so remarkable. I think he's always going. I don't think it's ever going to come a time when the when the fan base here um, doesn't love know, him. Turns no. <laughs> yeah, it could be called remarkable, or it could be called heartbreaking, depending on which side of the particular <laughs> show you're on. So, yeah. um, so anyway, Jeremy, tell us uh, kind of what you're working on these days. Something that may be of interest to a listener or two, or to me. Oh, and uh, tell us uh, how we can uh, find out more about you. Are you active on social media? Yeah, I'm probably not as active as I once was or should be. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter at, at uh, Jeremy, at N. My first name um, begins with the N, initial N, at N Jeremy Duru. Um, I'm, not, I'm on LinkedIn at, at, at N Jeremy Duru um, as well. So, yeah, please, um, I'd love to engage um, via social media. I'm working on a few things. I just wrapped up um, with a friend who's a professor at Wake Forest Law School uh, sports law treatise being published by Carolina Academic Press. And um, that was quite a bear of a project. Took us two and a half years, but that should be out in the fall. Kind of a once over black letter law approach to um, understanding sports law. And since then, I've been working a lot actually with Jim Rooney of the Steelers, um, co-owner of the Steelers. Just exploring kind of the, you know, the, the Rooney Rule, which I've written a lot about, which is named after his dad and the impact it's had and kind of race and the Steelers and the National Football League. And where are we on these things? So no written project has come out yet about that. We're hoping one will at some point. Um, but my conversations with him have been, you know, I mean, it, 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 if this were a football podcast, I'd love to have him on here talk about, you know, talk about this stuff. Andrew will keep working on me on yeah, that. Yeah, I know. We're wearing you down. It'll get there. <laughs> Jeremy, we appreciate you coming on, but we have a segment at the end of the show. We call it Check It Out, where we talk about the new music, TV, movies, books, what have you that we're interested in. Um, do you got something you want to share with us that we might want to pay attention to that's uh, new to you or new? Yeah, sure. Um, so with respect to kind of visual media, film, TV stuff, I just got done watching. It's not brand new, but um, I binged it over the weekend. Super Pumped. Have you heard of it? No. No, no. We have so not. Super Pumped. It's the story of Uber. <laughs> okay. How it was okay. founded. And now I'm it, interested. Yeah, I would advise it. It is a fascinating, it's a fascinating story of the company, but also of humanity. And so that's, um, <laughs> I've been just in like a day and a half. So I, it's just seven, it's a mini series. So it's seven, one hour uh, episodes. And then for reading, now I'm going to recommend something, Craig, that 
that you know that you know it's not doesn't seem exciting but boy is it exciting i read a book called why we sleep because i've been having trouble sleeping i wanted to you know try to improve my sleep and i learned so much about how important sleep is to every single thing that we do every to our disposition to our productivity to our physical health or mental health everything and i just i devoured the book and i've changed some of my habits as a consequence so i recommend why we sleep to everybody out there good recommendation yeah, yeah, yeah no, i dig <laughs> it maybe i need to read that yeah yeah sleep in between yeah, yeah read it <laughs> two weeks ago wilco came out with a new record it's called cruel country Listeners of the podcast know I love this band. Wilco is still the last band that I saw live, last touring band that I saw live in concert. I saw them in October 2019 during one of the three games that Houston was playing in Washington. And during the show, the fan, the the people that were at the show, of course, had their phones and were following the game because we were in Houston, downtown Houston. Everybody wanted to see Wilco, but everybody wanted to follow the game. So the the uh, lead singer and principal songwriter, or only songwriter, Jeff Tweedy, during the show started making jokes about people being on their phone during the show. But as the show went on and as the Astros got closer and closer to victory, the jokes became a little bit less funny <laughs> and more angry. <laughs> and people were not paying total attention wow. to the show. Now, I wasn't really paying attention on the phone. I was kind of back on the floor it's about a 3,000-seat arena, but it really became a disturbing aspect of the show, and I haven't been to a concert since, but that's not the reason. That aside, the show itself was good, really good, and this album is actually going back to their beginnings with more of a country sound, going back to their earliest record, AM, that Jeff Tweedy recorded after he left Uncle Tupelo. So if you loved AM... And you love the the um, the country twinged songs that were on the second album being there. You absolutely want to listen to Cruel Country. It's a great record. It's got about 21 songs. They're all fairly short. It's a phenomenal record, a great record that's reminiscent to their beginnings. This band continues to challenge and surprise Wilco, Cruel Country. Check it out. All right. Yeah. Uh, apologies to Wilco, but maybe understanding of Astros fans. Maybe we, maybe we need to have that conversation. It's three years ago. I've forgiven him for that. Okay. I feel like I'll be given flack from this, from Rex, but uh, I do have a pop recommendation today. Uh, last week, out of nowhere, one of my favorite uh, singers, Joji, released a new single. It is called A Glimpse of Us. And I feel like every time Joji drops a new single, like sales on antidepressants go up because, oh, my God, this is a sad song. <laughs> it, no, boss, I love Pinko. <laughs> I know, I know. And I'm, I'm sitting here listening to this super emotional song, and it's like it's deep, and it, it, it just hits. And I'm just sitting here like, this is the same guy I watched, like, you know, harass people on the street in, like, a pink full-body suit. And eat like uh, a hair cake, you know? Like Life's weird is what I'm saying. But if you have a chance, Glimpse of Us, very pretty song. It's awesome. Enjoy it. Check it out. Okay. Very good. Rex? So four days ago, German thrash legends creator dropped their 15th studio album, uh, Hate Uber Alez. Um, while it is laced with a lot of the more melodic stuff that creator's been experimenting with for the last decade... 
Uh, that title track and a couple of the others are straight up callbacks to the ages of extreme aggression. I found very interesting uh, one song in there, Being Immortal, which was kind of like a very old, almost like a Venom cover or something. Uh, but it was very good. Thought it was a great album. Check it out. See what you think. I like how he mentioned Uber twice and check it out today. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, a, <laughs> that's a... Refer back to Uber. Yeah, all right. There you go. Well, that's it for this week. We want to thank you for joining us. And also, special thanks to our guest, Professor Jeremy Duru from American University uh, Law School. We appreciate your reviews and ratings. We invite you to follow or subscribe. And, of course, follow us and comment on Twitter. We are at Hooks and Runs PC. Also, check out the show notes for this episode. You'll find some links, cool links, that are further reading on today's episode. On behalf of Andrew and Rex from Crazy Carl's Music Emporium in Midtown Bay City, good night. <laughs>